We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men, black mothers, sons, is as important as the killing of white men, white mothers, sons. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Some of you may know that song from the singing of Sweet Honey in the Rock. Some may recognize the words of civil rights champion Ella Baker, spoken over 50 years ago. Some may remember my singing the song from this pulpit on a Sunday morning in July of last year when I preached on the acquittal of George Zimmerman in the killing of Trayvon Martin. We could sing that song in church every Sunday. And maybe we should. He was a gifted artist, they say, sensitive and creative. He talked of playing basketball in the NBA someday. Sometimes he was bullied in school. I'm not talking about Michael Brown. I'm talking about Tamir Rice. The 12-year-old killed last Sunday on a Cleveland playground by a police officer who fired the fatal shots within two seconds of his arrival and then gave the boy no first aid. Nicknamed Bless, he once dreamed of a career in music, but his good looks brought modeling work and he'd just been offered a job with the city housing authority. Now he'd be able to support his two-year-old daughter. I'm not talking about Michael Brown. I'm talking about Akai Gurley, the unarmed 28-year-old shot dead 10 days ago by a police officer in the dark stairwell of a Brooklyn housing project where Akai was walking with his girlfriend. He was a quiet guy with a wicked sense of humor. His teachers called him a gentle giant. A music lover, he'd begun to rap. He dreamed of owning his own business someday. When he was killed, he was two days away from starting college. I am talking about Michael Brown. Tamir Rice, Akai Gurley, and Michael Brown don't have much in common, except for one thing. They're all young black men and they were all shot dead by the police. Last Monday, after Prosecutor Robert McCulloch announced the grand jury's decision not to indict Darren Wilson in Brown's death, the Reverend Peter Morales, president of the Unitarian Universalist Association, released a statement. Our fear that justice will not be served is now a reality, Peter said. Regardless of the reasons why a grand jury decided not to indict Officer Darren Wilson, people are angry, frustrated, and outraged. 
We must be a strong voice for change to end police brutality and the systemic racism in our society that causes violence, chaos, and death. Black lives matter, Peter said. Peter's statement drew over a hundred comments on Facebook, quite a few of them negative. Critics, at least some of them Unitarian Universalists, accused Morales of bias against the police or against white people. How dare he substitute his judgment for that of the grand jurors who had seen evidence he had not. There are reasons to question the grand jury's decision. The grand jury was three-quarters white, while Ferguson is two-thirds African-American. The prosecutor, Robert McCulloch, has a long history of siding with the police. His own father was a policeman killed in the line of duty by a black man when McCulloch was 12. McCulloch's brother, nephew, and cousin all served with the St. Louis police, where his mother worked as a clerk for two decades. It's easy for prosecutors to manipulate grand juries because the prosecutor decides which evidence they see. Grand juries rarely indict police officers because they tend to give them the benefit of the doubt. It was highly unusual for McCulloch to offer both incriminating and exculpatory evidence to the grand jury rather than just sufficient evidence to find probable cause that a crime had been committed. Faced with such voluminous and contradictory evidence, the grand jury may have felt confused or simply overwhelmed. When offering testimony, Officer Wilson was questioned very gently while prosecutors responded skeptically to witnesses contradicting him. And the only witness close enough to the scene to convincingly contradict Darren Wilson was Michael Brown. And Michael Brown is dead. But the truth is, I don't know what happened on August 9th between Michael Brown and Darren Wilson, and neither do you. It's not about Michael Brown. It's about Michael Brown and Johnny Gamache and Amadou Diallo and Timothy Thomas and Aaron Campbell and Sean Bell and Omar Edwards and Oscar Grant and Kendrick McDade and Ramarley Graham and Kimani Gray and John Crawford III and Eric Garner and Dontre Hamilton and Akai Gurley and Tamir Rice. It's about the pattern in which young black men encounter the police and die. Young black men are 21 times more likely than young white men to be killed by police. African Americans are dying at the hands of police today more often than they were lynched at the height of Jim Crow. Last Tuesday evening at the Community Forum at 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh drew on his experience as a recovering alcoholic. In order to move ahead in recovery, Walsh said, we have to deal with the past. The history of relations between armed authority and African-American men is a history of control. This control began with slavery, but it did not end with emancipation. As Michelle Alexander explains brilliantly in The New Jim Crow, 
After slavery was abolished, the systematic control of black men continued with the black codes, convict laws, vagrancy laws, chain gangs, lynching, the Ku Klux Klan, white citizens' councils, law and order, the war on drugs, stop and frisk, racial profiling, and mass incarceration. This control informs and contaminates every interaction between white authority and black males. It's the reason for the talk so many black parents have with a black son, which goes something like this. If you are stopped by the police, do exactly what they say. Even if they're harassing you, even if you did nothing wrong, do not talk back. Do not raise your voice. Keep both your hands in plain view. Do not reach for your wallet. Do not reach for your phone. If they arrest you, do not argue. Call me when you get to the precinct. Do you understand me? How many white parents feel it necessary to have such a talk with their white sons? I can tell you my parents never did with me because they knew and I knew that the policeman is my friend. The system of control of black men is rooted in white fear. Fear of black resistance, fear of black rebellion, fear of righteous black rage. Darren Wilson's testimony before the grand jury is infested with fear. Wilson testified that Brown's intense, aggressive face looked to him like that of a demon. Though at six foot four inches, Wilson is just as tall as Brown was. Wilson was terrified by the heavier youth. I felt like a five-year-old holding on to Hulk Hogan, he told the grand jury. That's how big he felt and how small I felt, just, just from grasping his arm. Even after Brown had been shot, Wilson said, it looked like he was almost bulking up to run through the shots. It was making him mad that I'm shooting at him, and that face that he had was looking straight through me like I wasn't even there. I wasn't even anything in his way. By now, Brown appeared to Wilson more animal than human. Wilson said Brown was grunting, crazy, aggressive, hostile. So Wilson fired 12 shots to put the animal down. It would be so easy and so convenient to dismiss Darren Wilson as an outlier, a racist, a bad cop. We can punish and feel that justice has been served. But Wilson's fear and racism are not anomalies. They are deeply embedded in our culture. Caricatures of black men as savage, uncontrollable brutes were commonplace in 19th and early 20th century America, and echoes linger in popular and sports culture today. The sound of car doors locking as white drivers enter black neighborhoods is the sound of fear and racism. The police are no more racist than the average American. The average American is racist including me. I grew up learning to fear black men, and I bet most of you did too. Give me a badge and a gun, and I'd be a racist with a badge and a gun. Look, being a cop is a tough job. 
It's a dangerous job. It's a vitally important job. Police officers have to make life or death decisions in split seconds. They're going to make those decisions based on the same cultural biases and stereotypes in which all of us are immersed. Masculinity is at work here, too. 85% of police officers in this country are men, and they are eight and a half times more likely than female officers to be held responsible for excessive force. According to Penny Harrington, former police chief, chief, former police chief of Portland, Oregon, women tend to talk, to reason, to try to de-escalate violence. Men have been taught through sports, through the military, that you use physical force to get situations under control. Meanwhile, a dozen years of war in Iraq and Afghanistan are coming home to cities and towns all over the United States. Combat veterans frequently seek employment in law enforcement, and they bring with them the survival instincts and emotional scars of foreign battlefields. Local police departments get surplus military hardware from M16s to mine-resistant ambush protection vehicles for just the cost of delivery and maintenance through the 1033 program, which requires them to use their equipment within one year or return it to the Defense Department. Militarization insulates police from human interaction, increasing the likelihood that people on the street will be seen as enemies to be eliminated rather than citizens to be served and protected. We are not indicting a man, says Chicago poet and activist Malcolm London. We are indicting a system. It's taken centuries to get us to this point. It will not change overnight. It's too soon to know whether the demonstrations triggered by the grand jury's decision will give birth to a serious mass movement to bend the arc of the moral universe toward justice. But we can start with some obvious reforms Every police officer should be outfitted with a body camera to make an indelible record of all interactions. Whatever the cost, this would be a sound investment in safety, accountability, and community trust. Militarization of law enforcement through the 1033 program should be halted. A national public data bank of police shootings, including the racial and ethnic identities of all involved, should be established. Every police officer should receive regular and renewed training in bias reduction and racial and cultural awareness. The federal government should develop mandatory national standards on the use of lethal force by police. But beyond advocating for these policies, each of us has a responsibility to learn more, to listen more, to bring greater knowledge and insight to every conversation we have. To make a difference, we're going to have to get out of our comfort zones. If you haven't yet read The New Jim Crow, please read it. I know it's a heavy slog. It's not as fun as watching Scandal or House of Cards. But it's information every American should have. If you haven't seen 12 Years a Slave, please see it. Just as important, see the movie Fruitvale Station about the life and death of Oscar Grant, which was snubbed by the Academy Awards, maybe because it takes place five years ago instead of 150 years ago.
If you're not familiar with online sources like Color Lines, The Root, or This Week in Blackness, check them out. Two excellent multiracial organizations in Massachusetts are the Lewis D. Brown Peace Institute and Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Those of us who are white, like me, are not responsible for white privilege. That comes automatically, whether we want it or not. But if we don't work to end it, we become responsible for maintaining it. We need to show up and shut up. When communities of color ask for support, we should show up, listen, respect their leadership, and not try to substitute our own. You know, some of the rhetoric at last Tuesday's vigil in Roxbury wasn't the language I would use. I didn't join in every chant. But it wasn't my show. It was theirs. Anyone serious about acting as a white ally is going to need support. We can join Allies for Racial Equity, which is building an anti-racism movement among white Unitarian Universalists. We can get involved with the Boston-based organization White People Challenging Racism, which offers trainings and resources on undoing white privilege. My colleague, the Reverend Meg Riley, writes, many have said that the purpose of religion is to grow a soul. What I long for most she writes, what I long for most as a white person is a bold movement of white people who grow souls deep enough to feel the brutality that was and is inflicted in our names, who stand in solidarity with people of color and resist, who know that our humanity resides elsewhere besides privilege. in this congregation. When we say we strive to build and to live the beloved community, this is what it means. Having difficult conversations, learning from one another, challenging one another, having compassion for one another, demanding justice, breaking down the barriers between us until every one of us is free.